I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2017. Coming up, interviews with doctors Jane Bach and David Norris, co-authors of Forensic Plant Science. They describe how the correct interpretation of botanical evidence can give vital information about a crime scene or a suspect or victim. For a fun start to science in the new year, let's take a science quiz put together by the editors of the journal Science in last week's issue. Question number one. In another region of space, an Earth-like planet was found this year orbiting our nearest stellar neighbor. Who is that neighbor? And the answer is Proxima Centauri. After years of scrutinizing this red dwarf, the closest star to Earth aside from the Sun, astronomers finally found evidence of a planet in the star's habitable zone. The planet, known as Proxima b, is just 4.25 light-years from Earth. Cosmically speaking, that's just a stone's throw away, putting the planet within range of telescopes and techniques that could reveal more about its makeup than any other exoplanet discovered to date. For your second question, back on Earth, Scientists discovered that chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans may share what very special trait with humans? Amazingly, it's the ability to read minds. This simply means the ability to intuit what someone else is thinking, even when that individual's beliefs are wrong. For years, only humans were thought to have this key cognitive skill, which is believed to underlie deception, empathy, teaching, and even language. But using an ape-oriented soap opera in which a researcher dressed up as another ape, scientists have shown that three species of great apes, the chimps, bonobos, and orangutans, also know when someone holds a false belief. For your third question, genomic studies last year all but proved that most people living outside of Africa descended from how many waves of migrations? Could it be just one The story of our species is driven by wanderlust. Born in Africa, Homo sapiens expanded into the far corners of the globe in the past 100,000 years, meeting and mingling with more archaic hominids already living there. But researchers have long debated how and when modern humans left Africa. Was it in a single migration or in repeated waves? In 2016, a burst of genomic data all but clinched the case that most living people outside Africa descended from a single migration. Any earlier migrations were swamped by that last wave. Question number four. In another major breakthrough, scientists created a designer suite of which molecules from scratch? If you say proteins, you're right. These macromolecules are life's workhorses, speeding up vital chemical reactions, communicating between cells, and defending against invaders. Given these talents, scientists have long wanted to create their own versions. This year, they took a protein modification to a whole new level. They created a suite of designer proteins, unlike anything found in nature, setting the stage for everything from novel biosensors to new ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Question number five. Scientists created something else this year. Babies born from egg cells grown entirely in a lab. What species did the egg cells come from? 
No, not humans, not yet anyway. It was mice. Giving new meaning to the term test tube babies, scientists in Japan this year produced mouse pups from egg cells grown entirely in a lab dish. Question number six. Several studies this last year revealed a relatively simple way to extend lifespan. What is it? This one got me. It's selectively killing old cells. Pricey plastic surgery won't stop you from getting old, nor will dietary supplements, testosterone injections, or those wrinkle creams that imply they'll make you look 21 again. But this year, researchers demonstrated one way to postpone some ravages of time, at least in mice. When they selectively weeded out rundown cells, which seemed to contribute to atherosclerosis, the animals lived longer and remained healthier as they aged. And for your last question, a pocket-sized version of what machine is revolutioning biology? No, can it be DNA sequencers? Yes. The new devices use a breakthrough technology called nanopore sequencing to read the letters of DNA directly. As a strand of DNA passes through a narrow pore, the individual bases, the letters, if you will, of the DNA molecule, alter an ionic current in a unique, readable way. The big advantages over traditional sequencing are that the startup cost is relatively low and the machine can, in theory, decipher unlimited lengths of DNA. The genome doesn't have to be chopped up and the sequence is pieced together later by a computer. And because it's quick and portable, the device can churn out sequences in a matter of hours. It can potentially be used for biosurveillance, clinical diagnosis, and the investigation of disease outbreaks on site. And locally, on Thursday, January 5th at 7 p.m., Fisk Planetarium will present Colorado Skies, which is a live talk and planetarium presentation covering current topics in astronomy and space and includes a look at what's up in the sky. On Friday, January 6th at 7 p.m., they will present Black Holes, the other side of infinity. You can learn about and watch the power and grace of some of the most mysterious and exotic objects in the universe. Then on Saturday, January 7th at 2.30 p.m., you can see the full dome show, Dynamic Earth. This show explores the inner workings of Earth's climate system. For more information, visit Fisk Planetarium webpage at Fisk, F-I-S-K-E, dot Colorado, dot E-D-U. Southern trees, they're strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies Good morning. This is Beth Bennett, and you are listening to the How on Earth Science Show at KGNU. And I am speaking with Dr. David Norris of the University of Colorado. He and his co-author, Dr. Jane Bach, recently released a book on forensic plant science. So let's start off, David, by maybe you could give us a little story, a little historical background as to how you got into this field, which after all, isn't really your field. That's right. Uh, my field is really endocrinology, and I'm a physiologist primarily. Uh, but many years ago, uh, Jane Bach and I were teaching general biology together, and we thought we worked very well as a team, but we had trouble trying to decide what a plant ecologist and an endocrinologist could do in the research field. 
Um, what happened next was very interesting because Jane got a phone call from a uh, assistant coroner, an assistant coroner for uh, Jefferson County, and they had a homicide case. Uh, this was in the early 1980s. They had a homicide case, and he had examined the stomach contents, and he thought it didn't match what they knew her last meal to be uh, prior to the, her disappearance. And he looked into the university catalog because he was also a professor of pathology at the CU Medical School, and he found that Jane Bach taught plant anatomy, and so he asked her if she would be willing to look at some samples, and the net result of that was, since Jane being a botanist, not being very familiar with uh, operation of the digestive system, um, she contacted me, and we got together and decided that this was an area that we could make a contribution in. I see. So, yeah. And that's a great example of serendipity in science because that's been a very fruitful relationship for a number of years now. Yes, it has been. Uh, and we've expanded into quite a variety of, of areas uh, using forensic botany um, or, or using, let's say, uh, botanical science. Um, right, right. And, and the book goes into a lot of the basic science, which is very interesting, and I think we can touch on that, but possibly in the context of a couple of the cases. And I found those case histories really fascinating. Maybe you could expound on a couple of your favorites. Well, in, in a way, a lot of our, our favorite cases, I think, were those that led to confessions. Right. Uh, and... Uh, it turns out that when a suspect is caught in a lie, they often then realize that the rest of their story is not believed either, and so they change their tune. So would uh, one of those stories be that Black Widow case on the West Slope? Uh, no, actually, that actually involved a trial. Ah, uh, I see. Than, rather than a uh, uh, confession. Uh, Okay, so we'll that come was, back to that. We'll come back to that Black Widow case. But what would be an example of someone being caught in a lie and how you managed to trap them in that? Um, we had a case where uh, a, a young child was uh, found by her mother in the car uh, at the end of the workday. She had taken the child to work with her and had left her in the car while she was at work all day. And she said that she checked on the child frequently during the day. And the last time she checked on the child, she found the child dead in the car. Um, <clears throat> apparently, she'd fallen and hit her head. Um, <clears throat> and she had told the investigators that in the morning, she had fed her a zinger, uh, which is in some people's mind, might already be child abuse, but that was all <laughs> she had had to eat that day. And for those uh, who, not, who aren't familiar with Zingers, I saw the picture in your book, and it looks a lot like a Twinkie. Yes, it's sort of a cheap Twinkie. Uh, 
and personally, I don't think they, it's as good as a Twinkie, but <laughs> I, don't eat Twinkie, I don't eat Twinkies anymore either. Um, and uh, in this particular case, the uh, zinger was still in the, in the stomach. It, it was in, enough intact that I was able to identify it, at least. And uh, as a result, she realized that um, her story was not believable anymore, and she confessed that the child was dead already when she put her in the car that morning. Ah, I see. And so to many of the listeners that are familiar with shows like CSI, they probably already know this, but I had to think about it a little bit, that, of course, if she had lived longer, she would have digested more of that zinger, and it wouldn't have been left intact in the stomach. That's correct. And furthermore, um, at death, the, the muscles at the posterior end of the stomach shut down. And consequently, whatever's in the stomach stays there as long as the stomach stays intact. Right, and so, right. And so you have a, a, a snapshot of the person's last meal. And using plant material in general is very uh, useful because it doesn't digest in the stomach. Although fact, I don't know if zingers would qualify for plant material. <laughs> Well, it's made of flour. Right, right. right. Um, and with the and the the, uh, the cream was still uh, evident. You see the lipid in the stomach as well. Right. So in this case, you actually did use some of the plant identification techniques because of the flour. I was being a little facetious in in saying they didn't really qualify because they're so highly processed. But you were able to maybe do a starch test of some kind. Uh, well, no. Uh, let's see, I don't remember whether we did a starch test in that case or not. But at any rate, you could identify that it was uh, plant right. material. It was, it was still in good enough condition that it didn't take long to uh, right. pair it with a, a fresh zinger. Yeah, yeah. So another case that I thought was really interesting was um, these poison pen letters and how you can identify the material that people use to um, send poison through the mail. Can you talk briefly about that? Well, we normally don't do that sort of work, but we've had a couple of cases where uh, people have have sent uh, the beans that ricin is, is extracted from, ricin being a very potent neurotoxin, and... Uh, we've been asked to identify if these indeed were the source of ricin. Right, and you were able to look at the seeds in order to make that identification. Yes. Yeah, the so seeds are very distinctive. Oh, are they, um, are they beans, and so they're very large? Is that why? Yes, they're quite, quite large. Okay. And so have you gone all over the state or even all over the country doing this kind of analysis and this kind of work? We've done it uh, quite a bit in the state of Colorado. We've also uh, had cases from many other states, um, including uh, the Bahamas. Oh, how nice. (laughs) Jane got to go to the Bahamas to testify in that case. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, we are unfortunately out of time, but I will provide a link on our website to your book, and congratulations on publishing the book recently. Thank you, Beth. 
I'm Beth Bennett, and you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I recently spoke with Dr. Jane Bach, a professor emerita in biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she taught and carried out research for over 30 years. Now retired from teaching, she continues to do research as a forensic botanist and serves as an expert witness for the defense or the prosecution in homicide cases. Here's her interview after her recent publication of Forensic Plant Science. Good morning, and I want to welcome Dr. Jane Bach to the How on Earth Science Show this morning. Jane is a professor emeritus in biology at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and she and her co-author, Dr. David Norris, have just released a new book on forensic plant science. So maybe we can start off, Jane, by you giving us a brief synopsis of what exactly forensic plant science is. Yes, uh, I'll give it give it a shot. It's the application of plant science or botany um, to the interests of the of justice. And um, and in our experience, we've mostly dealt with criminal justice uh, rather than civil justice. But uh, plants have been used in many civil cases with success as well. We just haven't had that experience because um, we sort of started off by accident, and um, and once we were put in view of people that did homicide investigations, um, the rest is history. And since your background is botany, then I yes. think that it's it's a given almost that you know you have a lot of credibility in the field as a scientist, as a good botanist, and so you have a certain um, reputation in the courts and and credibility, which is great because there's so much junk science in 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 both civil and criminal cases these days. So I'm delighted to see that in your book you actually talk a lot about how this is good, strong scientific evidence. Probably botany or plant science um, is among the oldest of biological sciences, if not the oldest, because the notion that is presented in herbals down to the present day of uses of plants, especially medicinal uh, ones or uh, plants that can be used as poisons, uh, not such good ideas, or uh, plants that can relieve pain, those interests have uh, have an ancient literature, not just in English and uh, modern European languages, but actually in Chinese language for thousands of years. So, so uh, it's pretty easy to defend botany as a science uh, when you're asked to justify your evidence in court. And can you give some examples of how you, in your work in this area, have used either or plant anatomy or taxonomy to provide evidence in criminal cases? Yes, I I certainly can. Uh, Let me talk about anatomy, and this is uh, the study of plant cells. We don't have as many different kinds of cells in plants, in the higher plants, uh, that we have in the human body, uh, even though there are uh, over a third of a million species of plants. Uh, But 
I'm thinking of a case that's um, never been solved, but it, the evidence is so intriguing. It happened in ski country a long time ago, about 30 years ago. Two young women were found uh, uh, to have disappeared from Summit County at one night in January, and uh, they weren't found again. Well, that's actually an intriguing part of the story. One of the women was found two days or three days later along the highway, and um, an autopsy was performed, and she'd been killed by a shotgun blast to the chest. Her stomach contents were saved because the plants that have these wonderful indigestible um, cell walls keep their size and shape um, for millennia. In fact, the bog people or the stomach contents of uh, now extinct mastodons uh, can be used to identify what their ancient diets were. And so we had the stomach contents of this young woman, and um, and we still didn't know anything about the second young woman. And um, in June, early June, the same year, there was a melt-off on Hoosier Pass. Lots of Coloradans are very familiar with Hoosier Pass. Yes. And this woman had been deep frozen in a big snow bank uh, with the accumulation of snow between January and, uh, and uh, late in the spring. And those stomach contents were given to us as well. There was no indication that the two women knew each other or uh, encountered each other. However, the second woman was murdered in the same way with a shotgun blast. And um, when we examined the stomach contents, they were nearly identical, and they indicated very strongly that the two women had stopped at a Mexican restaurant for their last meal, which was not taken all that long before they died. Um, and... Um, Like I said, the two women were different in that they didn't know each other, and also they were about 10 years apart in age, but one was a petite blonde, and the other one was two, long hair, blonde hair, and um, they had obviously, their last meal had been a, uh, at a, perhaps a Mexican or Spanish place because it had beans and onions and tomatoes and peppers and all those things we Coloradoans and other people with uh, Hispanic culture uh, love. And so we knew that, and, we, and, and the police and the state police and the feds worked very hard to track down who might have been with the two women at that time, hitchhiking was very common in, in Summit County, especially during ski season, because the people that worked in the industry didn't have much money. And our scenario is that the women were hitchhiking, and somebody picked them both up and killed them both. And, uh, and one was found very quickly, and the second one later. Of course, they could have been picked up uh, at two places, too, but all that remains a mystery. But it's interesting to me that each year in January, this story is told on some of the local newscasts. 
And um, it's because it turns out there is some federal and federal evidence that serial killers return to the scene of the crime. This has been assumed to be the work of a serial killer because women of the same pattern, short blondes, were killed in Utah around the same time, and then east of Colorado in the Midwest. But the clue we could provide was where their last meal had been. So here it is, an unsolved, frustrating mystery. Right. And, uh, the, right. Yes, and you have other, case, other cases like that as well. Where oh, yes. Oh, yeah. One, one of the... Actually, well, I was just going to say, I, I, you had mentioned taxonomy, so I was thinking about taxonomy cases that I've... Uh, that I've worked on, too. Yeah, so maybe in the, the couple minutes we have left, you could tell us briefly about one of those. Well, why don't I tell you how the, the information is applied? Because yeah. it, can link, it can link a victim to a crime scene because vegetation patterns uh, change from place to place, as you know from ecological knowledge, but also if you can get a distinctive identification using, for example, grass species that perhaps have a limited distribution, and yet uh, the body was found where those grasses are, and the suspect somehow had something about her or him with those same species, or it might have been on a vehicle that a perpetrator had or a suspect had, uh, and also linking to the victim and therefore linking a suspect to a victim. We've done a lot of that. uh, Right. A lot of it. And again, I want to stress, like you just did, that it's really cool that this is kind of low-tech but very powerful kind of evidence. Uh, We've never had any trouble getting it accepted, and, and in virtually every case we've participated in, it has led to a conviction, or to an exoneration of a suspect. Well, that's... So it's a powerful tool, and we, and we love using it. We've enjoyed this side, side aspect of our respective careers. And that and definitely, definitely comes out in your book. And I want to thank you for talking to us and congratulate you on your book. And unfortunately, we are out of time, but we will put a link to the book on our website. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. You've just heard an interview with local scientists, David Norris and Jane Bach. I spoke with them about their recent book, Forensic Plant Science, in which they discuss the basis and application of plant science to criminal cases. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, and was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, with additional music from Billie Holiday. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, as well as following us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.